Yes, Jesus, we, we agree that it's all about you. Not just today, but tomorrow and last week and the week ahead. That life is about you. And tonight as we worship you, as we turn our eyes towards heaven, as we look up, even in the midst of our own circumstances, in the midst of us being separated physically, Lord, we say that we are together spiritually. We are united at the same heart, the same mind, with millions, tens of millions hundreds of millions of people all over the world right now that are taking the moment to reflect, to remember the death you paid and the freedom that it provided for us. So Jesus, we just say we want this to be about you. We want our lives to be about you. We want to live in a way that just reflects your nature. So Jesus, we say thank you tonight. Thank you from the depth of our souls for what you did nearly 2,000 years ago and for what you're still doing today. We love you, Lord. Well, welcome and thanks for joining us um, tonight on Good Friday. And, you know, as Chris shared earlier, it's a moment for us to reflect and to remember uh, what good was it that Jesus died on the cross and that um, why do we celebrate this day? You know, I was thinking about um, when I was a child growing up in the church and uh, as far as I can remember, every Friday uh, around Easter, we would go to the Good Friday service and I remember being involved and just getting to sit and listen to the pastor preach or to the worship go on, and for some reason, it stuck in my mind. It's just a really uh, reverent time for, for me personally and for our family that we wanted to carve out this space on that Friday to remember and to reflect, and whether it was taking pieces of paper and nailing up our sin on the cross or if we reflected in some other way, we always wanted to engage with the cross, and that's our hope and prayer uh, tonight. You know, Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. I want to start out tonight by just kind of recapping some of the events that really were leading up to the scene that you just saw in the movie clip moments ago, but I want to share with you a couple of events leading, over, leading up in this week of Passover to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. You see, after Jesus celebrated his Passover meal on Thursday night with his disciples, he left to a garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, to pray and to really prepare his heart and his soul for what was about to take place. Well, soon after that, Judas left, who was a disciple that betrayed Jesus and went to the chief priests and the Pharisees and told them about where Jesus was. And again, the soldiers then came following Judas into the garden and they arrested him. In the middle of the night, this was all done and they actually gathered together 
with the religious leaders, and they started to falsely accuse Jesus of different things, trying to conjure up evidence against him so that they could do away with him. Well, eventually, they took him to Pilate, who was the Roman ruler in the area, and Pilate didn't really care much about the religious accusations because he was a Roman. He was not a Jew, but um, he did care about the political ones. You see, they had said things like, this Jesus was misleading our nation, implying that he was trying to pull the Jewish people away from Roman rule. Another charge they had was that, um, uh, was that he was forbidding people to pay taxes to Caesar, which is not true at all. And then the third accusation was that he was proclaiming to be the king of the Jews, implying that he was directly challenging the authority of Caesar as the Roman emperor. You see, each of these accusations came forward, and Pilate, after examining Jesus and asking him his own questions, he turns to the chief priest and to the crowds, and he says, I find no guilt in this man. Now, why is that important? That's important because you remember in the Old Testament that God marked out a very specific way for sacrifices to be made. He would say it needs to be one of your unblemished lambs or doves or goats. He didn't want you to take, uh, to take the weak link or to take the one that was diseased. He wanted you to take your most perfect, your most precious lamb or cow or goat in your flock and that you would sacrifice that one. So when Pilate says, I find no guilt in this man, it is just fulfilling the role of Jesus as the perfect lamb of God. Well, Jesus is sent off to another official, Herod, after Pilate couldn't really have any charges against him. And Herod was an interesting character, and he decided to mock Jesus. You see, he uh, put a crown of thorns on him and covered him in a robe. And in Luke 23, verse 14 through 15, after he deals with him, he then sends him back to Pilate. So Pilate, for a second time, talks with them and stands before the crowds and religious leaders and says this. You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Nothing deserving of death has been done by him. Verse 16, I will therefore punish and release him. So Pilate thought he could satisfy the crowds in this way. But the crowds, stirred up by the chief priests, stirred up by the religious leaders, they started calling out, crucify him. And so Pilate gave them the choice, as we shared earlier, between a known criminal, a man who had created riots and an insurrection against the Roman rule, this man Barabbas, a known convicted criminal to all the people there that day, and Pilate thinking, surely they're not going to want me to hurt Jesus over this guy. But the crowd was so taken up that they started saying, release to us Barabbas and crucify Jesus. Again, this is the story of the gospel. It is we, the convicted, being exchanged in the place for the innocent. You know, the story reminds me of a story of two brothers. 
There were two brothers who were identical twins. And on the outside, they were identical, but on the inside, they were very different. You see, the first brother, he was good and honest, and he grew up and became a judge one day. The second brother was quite evil in his heart and sinful, and when he grew up, he became a criminal. But one day, the evil brother committed a crime that was punishable by the death penalty. He was arrested and put in jail until the day he had appear in court. And on that day, he walked into the courtroom. He saw his brother was the judge sitting on the bench, and he thought, yes. I'm going to be okay. It's my big brother. I'll probably still be prosecuted, but at least I won't get the death penalty, even though that's what I deserve. Well, at the end of his trial, the jury found him guilty, and his brother sentenced him to death in three days' time. As they were taking him out of the courtroom, he was thinking, I can't believe my brother did that to me. Why did he do that? He sat alone in jail for two days, desperate. Because he knew his life was going to the end. The good brother came to the jail to visit him on the second day and proposed a plan. He said, let's exchange clothes with each other and then you can walk out of here free. And I'll take your place. It'll all work out in the end. Well, the evil brother thought it was a great idea. So they traded clothes and the evil brother left while the good brother stayed in his place. The next morning at 6 o'clock, the evil brother came back to the jail, curious to see what would happen to his brother. He climbed on top of a wall to see, and they pulled his brother out of his jail cell. He peeked over the wall to see what was going on and heard a volley of shots, and his good brother fell to the ground dead. The evil brother fled in shock and eventually found his way to the brother's house, he went inside and found a letter on the desk addressed to him. It said, Brother, you committed a crime, so someone must die. I love you, so I took your place. And from now on, please live a different life. Simply put, this is the story of Jesus. This is him taking our place. He's the judge. He's the innocent. He's the, he's the good brother, so to speak. And in just in this exchange between Jesus and Barabbas, he's even emphasizing the point all the more. Jesus the innocent taking our rightful place on the cross. Because you see in Romans 3.23, the Bible says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Which means if you're 85 years old or 35, or if you're watching this and you're 5 or 6 years old and you're a kid, you've already sinned. You've already stolen someone's toy. You maybe told a lie. Or you've done something much worse. But because all have sinned, Jesus came and he died on the cross for all. Not just for a few. Not just for a couple different people. He died for all. And so Jesus, in this moment, we read in 2 Corinthians 5.24, Paul writes, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Isn't that incredible? Isn't it incredible that he lived a sinless, perfect life, and in exchange, we receive his righteousness. I love what, what John Gill's commentary says. If you don't know uh, John Gill, he actually was a preacher in the same church that Charles, per Charles Spurgeon preached in, but he preached 100 years 
earlier, all right? And this is what he wrote on this verse. He said, the sins of all his people were transferred unto him, laid upon him, and placed to his account. He sustained their persons and bore their sins, having them upon him and being chargeable with and answerable for them. He was treated by the justice of God as if he had been not only a sinner, but a mass of sin. Can you picture Jesus going up to the cross, sinless, not an ounce of evil in him, not an ill will or a bad thought, even the time as a child, to have someone live on this planet, to live a perfect, sinless life. And then in a moment on the cross, literally taking the world's sin and heaping it up on Jesus. That's mine, yours, and everyone in your house, and everyone that you know, and every friend. And he takes it upon him, and it is the wrath of God, and this massive sin coming upon him. Don't you know the weight of that was crushing? But Jesus did it out of love. You see, God fulfills and vindicates his righteousness and credits it to us. Our sin is on Christ and his righteousness on us. That's the great exchange. That's the exchange that God is providing for us. In 1 Peter 2, 24, it says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, referring to the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. I know many of us know this, but when Jesus was beaten up, he was whipped 39 times, severely, almost to the point of death. He had a crown of thorns that was put upon his head to mock him as the king of the Jews. He was spit upon, thrown down in the dirt, had to even carry up his own cross to the hill of Golgotha. And there he died, and he gasped for air. And this Jesus, who had many, many cuts all over his body by his wounds, or another translation says, by his stripes, you have been healed. Because you see, the way God has set it up is that blood has to be spilled. A sacrifice has to be made in order for sins to be removed from people. This is what Jesus did for us. He made a way when there was no way. He died because it was the only way for sins to be atoned for. For God's only son to take it upon himself. But you know, earlier we read a passage that Jesus said of himself. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And nobody comes to the Father except through me. The truth of Jesus is that the truth is freeing. When you know Jesus, when you believe in what he's done, then he reveals to you the truth of who he really is. It says in John 8, 31 through 32, Jesus said to the Jews who believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. As you know, 2,000 years ago, people were hungering for truth, just like today. People are wanting to know what is true, what is real, what is factual, what can I trust? And as Christians, we are called to believe, to believe in what Jesus said and to believe in what the Bible says and what Jesus did. 
you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. But you know, some of the people responded to Jesus in this moment in John chapter 8, and they said, um, how will you become free? Like, how is it that you say you'll become free? And I believe this is a question that a lot of people are asking. You might be asking it. How can you really be free? <laughs> of course I want that. I, I want to be free from addiction. I want to be free from the pain. I want to be free from the depression. I want to be free from the abuse. I want to be free from the thoughts that, that torment my mind. I want to be free from the guilt and the shame of, of stealing bread or robbing someone's toy or doing something much worse. I want to be free. I don't want to carry that guilt, that heaviness. But you know, Jesus, John 8, 34 through 36, said, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. How can this be? How can you say we can be free? Because Jesus has the keys to your freedom. He has the keys to your freedom. That's who Jesus is. That's why he said you have to go through me in order to get to the Father. There's no other way. There is no plan B. There's no plan C. There's no multiple choice to knowing God. There's no multiple choice to heaven. There's no multiple choice to having a real relationship with God. There's no multiple choice to being freed from sin. It's one choice. It's the easiest test you'll ever take. There's one choice. It's Jesus. The Son will set you free. And when he does, guess what? You're no longer a slave to sin. You're a son of God. You're a daughter of God. You get adopted into God's family. And guess who the one is adopting you? Jesus. Some of us are watching and you're hearing me share this about Jesus. And I want you to know that you may not have a relationship with him, but I want to give you an opportunity to have that relationship. You see, the gospel is good news. We know that today is Good Friday, but the gospel is good news. And in Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, this is really good news. It says, by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Did you catch that? You can be saved. You can be set free from your sins. You can actually put your massive heap of sin on Jesus, be set free, and have atonement for your sins to be in a right relationship with God, to have righteousness on you instead of all the sin because Jesus exchanges his righteousness to you. You can do that. You know what he says? If you'll simply believe in me and what I've said. So if that's you and you want to receive Jesus Christ right now, you may not know what tomorrow holds or next week, but what I do know is that right now, God has his arms open wide ready to invite you into his family. If you want to pray to receive Jesus, you can simply repeat after me. Dear Lord Jesus, I admit I am a sinner, and I ask for your forgiveness. I believe Jesus died for my sins and rose from the dead. I choose to turn from my sin and follow you all the days of my life. I invite you, Jesus, to come into my heart. In Jesus' name, amen. If you just prayed that prayer, 
guess what? You just exchanged your sin for his righteousness, which means that is cause to celebrate. But for everybody else who's already received Jesus, who's already following him, there are some things that we need to maybe die again to here on Good Friday. See, Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Therefore, if Jesus is the one that's living, no longer you, then we have to ask the question, what in our flesh needs to be crucified? So here's what we're going to do. We're going to invite you into a moment, just a few moments. We're going to take communion together as a church family. So hopefully you've got your bread or wine or juice or crackers ready to go. But before we do that, I want everyone watching to simply ask the question, what in my flesh needs to be crucified? And in fact, I want to encourage you to get a sticky note or a piece of paper. If you want to get something you can write on, I want you to write on something. If you can, grab something. And just write down, if it's one word or a phrase, I want to give you a moment to do that. To write something down. Because in just a moment, as you write it down, together, we're going to take those pieces of paper in your homes, wherever you are with your family, your roommates. You're going to take that paper and you're going to shred it and throw it in the trash. If you want to shred it, crumble up, throw it in the middle of the room or wherever you are. We want to take it because tonight, Jesus is taking that from you. You can't keep that in your backpack anymore. You've released it to him. Just want to give you a moment to write that down. Answer the question, what in my flesh still needs to be crucified? Take a moment to do that. And as you're taking a moment to write that down, you know, we're going to take communion here. And, um, you know, communion is a sacred thing. It's not something that we conjured up. Actually, Jesus, it was his idea. In fact, 1,990 years ago, on a Thursday night, he sat down with his disciples. and They celebrated the Passover meal. And during this meal, he actually got a piece of bread, a loaf of bread, and He took it in front of his disciples and um, he said, this is my body broken for you. And when you eat of this bread, when you take of this, I want you to eat of it, doing this in remembrance of me. Now, of course, this is before Jesus was about to be crucified, but he wanted them to remember this moment so that every time they sat down to take communion or take the Lord's Supper together, that they would break the bread and they would drink from the cup. And this cup has a lot of significance because Jesus, he had this cup of wine and they had it at their meal and he took it and he said, do you see this wine? (laughs) He said, this is like my blood being poured out for you. You see, his disciples would have known that, you know, blood being poured out, that hints at a sacrifice. He's talking about not just a prick of the finger, he's talking about a sacrificial pouring out of his blood. And so when we take communion together as a church family, we're taking it remembering what Jesus did. And in fact, throughout the ages, throughout nearly the last 2,000 years, 
the church around the world has been taking communion much like this. It may be crackers and juice. It may be leavened bread or unleavened. It may be uh, uh, whatever it is. But the point is that we gather together. And at this moment, we remember Jesus dying on the cross, exchanging our sin and shame for his righteousness. So let's do that together. As we take the bread, we remember this is the body of Jesus being broken for us. take the wine or the juice we drink this remembering this is the blood being poured out on our behalf so Lord Jesus we say thank you for dying on the cross thank you for the great exchange you exchanged our sin for your righteousness our slavery for sonship, our bondage for freedom. And we say thank you. And we ask, Lord, that anything in us that needs to be crucified again, because we've been crucified with Christ, it is no longer I who live, but you live in me. Lord, we ask for that for every child, every college student, every adult, every family, everyone watching, Lord, we pray that every one of us would be more like you as we go to bed tonight, just a little closer to you, as we reflect on what you've truly done for us. We thank you, Jesus. Just lastly, before we end with worship, just want to remind you that if you have need at all, if you prayed to receive Jesus, then we want you to text in. You can uh, text in, uh, uh, pray now. It's there on the screen. It should be right there. But you can text in if you want to do that. And we've got a team of volunteers ready to go uh, just to pray for you. So if you send a text in, we'd love to follow up with you just to pray for you, minister to your heart, especially if you just prayed to receive Jesus and said, man, I want to start following this Jesus for real. We would love for you to text us so we can connect with you and follow up with you. But we're going to jump into a time of worship here. Remember and reflect what Jesus has done.